The Sistine Chapel is one of the true jewels of the art world. Now, after spending four years painting it, Michelangelo finished his masterpiece in 1512, and the chapel went into immediate use once he was done. Now, in those days, the only light source came from candles. And as candles burned year after year, the soot began to rise to the ceiling, obscuring the painting. In fact, after 400 years of soot, grime, and dust collecting on the ceiling, the original artwork that Michelangelo had created needed to be restored. So a team of restorative artists worked on the Sistine Chapel for 15 years until the monochrome colors were restored to their original beauty. Now, prior to the restoration process, there were many in the art community who thought that Michelangelo was a genius at composition. I mean, after all, how did he think to have Adam's hand stretching out, yearning to find the finger of God, which was already reaching out for Adam? But it was also widely believed that Michelangelo's coloration was mediocre. It was too dark, monochromatic. It was, in technical terms, blah. And yet, when they restored the paintings to their original state, everyone could see the beautiful, fresh, even spring-like colors he used. Pale pink, apple green, vivid yellow, and sky blue against a background of warm, pearly gray. Now, when the maker's true brilliance and goodness were revealed, People had to change their assumptions about Michelangelo. Well, in our text this morning, in a similar way, through all the events leading up to 2 Samuel 7, the missteps of Saul and the missteps of David, they're like years of soot, grime, and dust obscuring the character of God. God's character at this point in the story seems blah, mediocre, and maybe even dark. In fact, some people who read through 1 Samuel, and then they get this far into 2 Samuel, they begin to question if God is good. It's as if the author of Samuel senses this questioning of God, and so he writes chapter 7. Uh, let me share with you just a few interesting facts about 2 Samuel 7. Second uh, Samuel, when you read this story here, it is surrounded by passages having to do with David's reign, uh, wars, his, his actions, some of which are questionable. And many of the chapters are filled with the action as we see David fight, as we see David build things and let leap and dance before the Lord. And then all of a sudden in all this action, here appears chapter 7, no action. In fact, it's just two short speeches and two longer speeches. The story slows to a crawl as we are given a mountain of words. Something else that's interesting about chapter 7 is this. It contains the longest speech from God since God spoke to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai back in Exodus. This is one of God's longest speeches up to this point. And so these long speeches in chapter sevens, 7 are works of res restoration. So David and God's people can see the true colors of God's perfect character. Now, David may be a key actor in this story, but it is God who is always at center stage. 
As we read and study 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want you to think of David's words and actions as commentary on what God is really like. In fact, that's the question we will consider this morning. What is God really like, according to 2 Samuel 7? Now, from the opening verse, God takes the credit. God takes the credit for David being where David is, safe, secure, and at rest in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. See, right there, we see it. See, as we saw last week in chapter 6, David appears to take more credit and seek more honor for his success as a king of Israel than he should. Immediately in chapter 7, verse 1, we see the truth. It's God. God is the one who is in charge of David achieving success, often despite David's human flaws. And it appears David may be realizing this. Because while he's at rest, which is rare for David, remember, he's a hyperactive king. He's always looking for the next problem to solve, the next battle to fight. But in chapter 7, he is at rest. And he seems to be wrestling with some guilt. It appears David has slowed down enough to realize that he is where he is, this beautiful house of cedar, because of God's doing. And then he looks out his window of his palace and he sees God living in a tent, a tent David had made for the Ark of the Covenant. So in verse two, David says this. He says this to Nathan the prophet. Here I am living in a house of cedar while the Ark of the God remains in a tent. Now I'm curious. I'm curious why David is talking to Nathan about this housing issue and not God directly. Anyways, that's for another time. A house of cedar is a place that's strong. It's an impressive building worthy of a king, while tents, tents were the common shelter for poor families to live in. Besides being the housing of the poor, tents were also easily blown away. They were fragile to the effects of sun, wind, and rain, and they were portable. They were temporary. They were able to be moved from one location to another location, and yet a tent is where God is living. Recognizing David's concern, the prophet Nathan gives a stamp of approval to King David's idea to build God a temple. Nathan says, go ahead, go, do it. But Nathan the prophet misspeaks. In fact, God steps in to correct Nathan in verse four, look at it. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go. Go and tell my servant, David. Isn't that interesting? In verse 3, Nathan tells David to go and build God a temple. But then in verse 5, God tells Nathan, go and tell my servant, David. Do you see what is happening here? God is redirecting the plans of the king. God's reminding David, and he's reminding us as the readers, that David's not in charge. God is. God controls the action of his kingdom. Now look what, he tell, look what Nathan tells David in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Verse 7. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, important word, shepherd, to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? As God moves around, as his people Israel do, who does God look like? As God moves around, who does he look like? Let me give you a clue. Listen to these verses from a very famous psalm, and it describes a person walking around. Here it is. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff. They comfort me. What type of person is being described in Psalm chapter 23? You know the answer. A shepherd. A shepherd moves with his sheep. As his sheep need water or food, the shepherd moves. When the sheep need a safe place to rest, the shepherd moves. When the sheep are under attack, the shepherd moves to protect them. It's this shepherd image, this shepherd language that takes over in verses 8 through 11 of 2 Samuel 7. In fact, look at it. Look in verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off your enemies, all of your enemies, from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Verse 10, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now we see with clarity the character of God. God is reminding David that God is a shepherding God. So if God is a shepherding God, David must be a shepherding King. We see that in verse 7. Now remember, David is a former shepherd who becomes a king. And yet the longer David is king, I wonder if he's forgetting. I wonder if he's forgetting his first priority, his first responsibility of shepherding God's people. You see, in the Old Testament, the image of shepherd is the language of leadership. You just have to go back to Numbers chapter 27, verse 17, and we see Joshua is not simply a leader. He leads like a shepherd king. The text says this, Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as, catch this, sheep which have no shepherd. God's leaders lead 
as shepherds. Besides leading, the second role of the shepherd king is to feed or to provide for the sheep. The prophet Jeremiah promises Israel that a day would come when there will be shepherds who will feed the flock with, and here's what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, who will feed the flock with knowledge and understanding. As a caring shepherd, the king is to feed the people of God, not with physical food alone, but with instruction that guides God's people in the ways of God. That's how he feeds them. A.W. Tozier wrote this. The decline of the knowledge of God has brought, on our, has brought on our troubles. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way towards curing what most ails us at the present time. That's a great quote. You see, when God's people fail to feast on God's word, they become spiritually malnourished, too weak to do the will of God, which is why the king must feed them on God's word. The third role of the shepherd king is to protect the afflicted sheep. When there is no shepherd or the shepherd lacks understanding, the the flock will be vulnerable. You see, a foolish shepherd, a foolish shepherd is one who will abandon the flock and leave it to the mercy of their predators, the wolves, the bears, and, and the lions. And once abandoned, the sheep become lost. They become neglected and scattered, which is what's described by Zechariah in chapter 11, verses 16 to 17. It is the responsibility of the shepherd to shield the sheep from harm, from danger. So it is with their king. Under the leadership of an evil king, we see in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, where it says, I saw all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. That's what an evil king does. When the king fails to lead Israel to obey God's commands, his people scatter. And scatter is what Israel will do. You see, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, from this point on, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, will will struggle to shepherd God's people well. And Israel is eventually scattered throughout the world by the exile, all because of evil kings. Because the kings of Israel failed to shepherd God's people well, God promises to send one true shepherd one day, a new David, it says, who will care for God's people forever. In fact, listen to this prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 34, 23. It says this, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's why we're not surprised in the gospel of John chapter 10 when we are told that Jesus is what? The good shepherd. Not even David had this title. Only Jesus is called the Good Shepherd. Now, what is it about Jesus that makes him refer to himself as a Good Shepherd? Well, in John chapter 10, there are five qualities of Jesus that show him to be the perfect Shepherd King. Let me just run through them quickly. Number one, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am. I am. 
This is the fourth of seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. And each time Jesus says, I am, he is pointing to his divine identity and purpose. In being God, Jesus knows how to shepherd people well because he was the shepherd God who faithfully led Israel throughout the Old Testament. What this means is this. We can trust where Jesus is leading us. Second thing, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Boy, I hope you catch that. Jesus is the good shepherd, not simply a good shepherd. And not only is he the, but it also says this, no one else is like him, so he is also called the good shepherd, Colossus. Unlike other shepherds in the world who are wicked, uh, mean, uh, other shepherds who will lead you astray, uh, that are unloving, Jesus is good. His character is noble, wholesome, beautiful. In fact, the word good is a description for the character of God himself. Being good means that Jesus will point us to God. All other shepherds other than Jesus will fail us if we look to them for our salvation because only Jesus has the exclusive title of the good shepherd. He is the only way to God the Father. Here's the third thing. Jesus knows his sheep completely. He knows them completely. John 10, 14 to 15, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus Christ knows you completely. Now, there may be times when you're a mystery to yourself, but you're never a mystery to Jesus. In fact, in the Psalms, we read this in Psalm 103, 14, the Lord knows our frame. Christ knows your temperament. He knows your mood. He knows what lifts you up. He knows what gets you down. There is nothing you could ever tell Jesus about yourself that he does not already know completely about you. Here's the joy of Jesus knowing you completely. Jesus knows the best way to lead you to maturity. The good shepherd knows what you need, and he is able to give you what you need at precisely the time that you need it. Here's a fourth thing. As Jesus' disciples, as Jesus' sheep, Jesus owns you and will never abandon you. In John chapter 10, 14 and verse 27, Jesus says, we've heard this already, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me, my sheep hear my voice. This is another characteristic of Jesus that makes him different from the hired hands. You see, a hired hand is one who does not own the sheep, as we hear in John chapter 10, verse 12. The hired hand has no real investment in the flock. Uh, uh, being a hired hand, it's his job. And so he's always calculating whether it is worth the effort, whether it's worth the risk of doing his job for what's he, what he gets paid. So when a hungry bear or a wolf comes along looking for a fat sheep to devour, the hired hand will evaluate the situation and likely say this, Nope, it's just not worth it. Saving that little sheep by giving up my life, no way. And the commitment of the hired hand has limits. Well, so we see in Ezekiel 34, the prophet foretold that the Messiah, 
the Messiah would, like a true shepherd, come to caringly keep God's people. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He's not a hired hand. He's the owner of the sheep. Jesus does not care for you because of what he can get out of you. That would be the spirit of the hired hand. Jesus cares for you simply because you are his. There will never be a time when he will say, you're not worth it. No, through Jesus' death and through our baptism, Jesus made us his own. Since you are his, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Man, with such a shepherd committed to us for life, what is there to fear that Jesus can't protect us from? Finally, number five, Jesus guards you and will keep you forever. In John chapter 10, verses 28 to 29, it says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now I want you to imagine for just a moment, what is it that you fear most today? Literally name it. What do you fear most? Are you thinking of your biggest fear right now? Now look at it. I know, I know it's scary. To look at it puts a lump in your throat. But I want you to take that fear and imagine your greatest fear becoming reality. I know it's, a terrori- it's terrorizing to imagine. But here's what I want you to think about. Life without that loved one, the diagnosis from the doctor's office is stage four cancer, and that relationship that is shattered and will never be put together, it scares you to death. And as fearful as all those things are, now picture yourself as a scared and confused sheep in the hands of the good shepherd. Yes, there are still tears. Yes, life will be different. Yes, you will miss the old days before this all happened. But with your life in the hands of the good shepherd, you have peace. A.W. Pink gives this vivid picture. He says this, The hand of Christ is beneath us, and the hand of the Father is above us. Thus, we are secured between the clasped hands of of omnipotence, God's power to guard us. What a good shepherd we have in Jesus. I own a little book in my office written nearly 50 years ago by a former shepherd by the name of Philip Keller. Now he titled the book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And he tells about his experience as a shepherd in East Africa. You see, the land adjacent to his home was rented out to a tenant shepherd, a hired hand who didn't take very good, uh, didn't take very good care of his sheep. His land was overgrazed, eaten down to the ground. The sheep were thin, diseased by parasites, and they were often attacked and killed by wild animals. Keller especially remembered how the neighbor sheep would line up at the fence and blankly stare in the direction of Keller's green pasture and his healthy sheep, almost as if they yearned to be delivered from their abusive shepherd. Those six sheep longed to come to the other side of the fence and belong to Keller. As Keller's story reveals, The goodness of the shepherd determines the health 
of the sheep. The goodness of the shepherd determines the health of the sheep. Who is your shepherd? As believers in Jesus Christ, it is a blessing to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd.